0: Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Content warning. Today's episode talks about sexual assault, rape, childhood sexual abuse, and forced seduction, CNC kink, and other narratives around healing from sexual trauma. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and with me today, I've invited Dr. Holly Richmond, to join me for a conversation about how to have hot sex again after sexual trauma. For those of you who listen along, you know this is a topic I talk a lot about, but Holly is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex therapist, and she holds a PhD in somatic psychology. But most importantly, she wrote a book about Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. So I'm really excited, Holly, for you to be here today and have this conversation. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you, Kate. Um, It just means so much that you invited me. Um, I follow this podcast, so uh, what an honor to be included.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, I want to jump in with a question that I received from a listener. Her name is Emma. She's 37 and she lives in New York. And Emma wrote in and said, I was raped when I was 20. I often have fantasies about rough sex, a kind of roughness that mirrors the assault. I don't ever want to be raped again, but it's hard for me to climax without the fantasy of being overpowered. My partner's hesitant and thinks that he's re-traumatizing me. So he doesn't want to engage in this kind of sex. Am I broken?
1: What a wonderful question and um Kate, I know you know this and Emma for you, I I can't even tell you how many times I've heard a version of this question. So let's let's jump right in. Um, So first, I want to say you're not broken. This is very normal. And this fantasy that you're having is really your attempt to reclaim control and feel empowered and embodied. Um, Emma, I would be curious for you how you feel after engaging in that kind of sex. So if it's only with your partner, and I know he's unwilling to do it or if you engage in these kind of fantasies or watch porn or read stories about um, forced seduction. So forced seduction is the language that we use now instead of rape fantasies, we're really talking about the same construct. And I also want to mention forced seduction is one of the top fantasies for all female bodied people, whether they're survivors or whether they're not survivors. The percentage there is just about the same. But I certainly in my practice, I hear so much from survivors like, oh, my gosh, I have these horrible rape fantasies, what does this mean? And again, I know you don't want this in real life. That's why it's playing out in your subconscious and a little bit in your conscious too. The biggest question again for me is how do you feel after engaging in this behavior? Because if you're in shame, if you're not feeling good, if you're not feeling connected either to yourself or to your partner, I would take some steps back from it. And if you were working with me, if you were working with Kate, we would just dial that back for a series of weeks or months to see what else you could use to help increase arousal and then save that to the end, re-engage with it a couple months down the road and see how you feel.
0: I really appreciate that perspective, Holly, and share it. It's it's so hard, I think, for a lot of folks in female bodies to really understand what this kind of fantasy is about, whether they are survivors or not. And I wonder if we can break this down a little bit, what you said earlier about this fantasy being a place where people can feel in control of what can feel like an out of control experience in real life. How do you help folks understand that?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so really, when we look at this fantasy um, and one of the books I love about that really explains fantasies is Justin Lay Miller's Tell Me What You Want. So he goes into a really beautiful, in-depth description here. From my perspective, why this fantasy is so hot. Is because really the person the survivor the submissive is very much in control and she is so in control that she is incredibly desirable her partner can't keep his or her hands off of her Um, and therefore she's really running the show and in the subconscious in your fantasy i can guarantee this is all about pleasure there's nothing that's pain oriented that over, being overcome with power is really your power. It's just getting placed on the other person in your story. Um, Kate, do you have anything else to add to that?
0: I think it's really important to illustrate that in a patriarchal society, women are consistently, women and female-bodied folks are consistently put in positions of subjugation. And so that can also play a big role in the desire to be overtaken in sexual fantasies. Because again, to your point, that's a place where we have control. And when partners participate in this kind of play consensually, what they're really saying is let's create a frame together and let's outline what the boundaries are and what the limits are. And they both have the idea and the option to pull the stop button at any point throughout their play. And that's what gives people the, the, the space to play in what can feel like a really scary construct. But when people do start to live in that space, they get to take control over an aspect of themselves that feels really powerless and really helpless in real life. And that is where there actually can be some healing, whether somebody is a survivor of sexual trauma or not, and they have experienced depression because of their gender. Um, so I think it's a really important place to lean into if you or your partner have this fantasy, because it does give people a way to play through the pain that they experience in day to day lives.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um... And and Emma, in reclaiming pleasure, you're also kind of, your fantasy is stepping into the first parameter that I discovered needs to be healed or needs to be looked at, and that is control. So there's two, two aspects of control. There's maintaining control and relinquishing control, and your fantasy steps squarely into both of those. So for most survivors that I work with, especially female body survivors, they have control on lockdown. So their lives are very controlled. They're usually controlling work. They're controlling their home. They're controlling their diet. They're controlling exercise. So the work there is more in the relinquishing control. And obviously, that is what your fantasy embodies. It's this idea of relinquishing control. I don't want to have to make any more decisions. I make decisions... 3,000 times a day. I don't want to make decisions. I want to be so desirable. I want someone to tell me what to do. I want to be able to relinquish control in a way that feels safe and empowered. And your fantasy just beautifully illustrates that.
0: How would you help someone understand their desire for painful sensations in this context?
1: So Kate, the first place I would go with that is that we know, so we know there's four trauma responses, right? There's fight, flight, freeze and fawn freeze and fawn are going to be the two most common responses that survivors of sexual trauma experience and if they were in freeze during their sexual trauma and they've kind of adapted freeze throughout their life so numbing not being present oh my gosh, doesn't pain or like a lot of sensation, intense sensation and pain, doesn't that solve that problem? It brings me right back into my body. I can't ignore it. I am a human being with both a brain and a body. And I start to integrate um, that through this, this, what we hope would be healthy play.
0: Yeah, it's such an important piece to hold on to. Uh, I'm sure, Holly, you get this question a lot in your practice and your work with survivors. I often hear from survivors a lot of shame and fear around what it means that they like aggressive sexual play, whether it's um, a forced seduction play or CNC kink or something different that involves pain exchange and more of a kinky practice. And it's confusing for a lot of them, and it's confusing for their partners who often don't want to replicate any uh, horrible experiences that they've had in the past and don't want to be seen as somebody who might be in a predatory position or in a hurtful position. So how do you help the partners of folks who enjoy this kind of play understand what it means to be in those roles together?
1: The sex therapy community, of course, that we know that any kind of kinky play, this this um, type of scenario, this setting, this lifestyle, is the most consent-based type of sex we see across the board. Kate, I hope I hope you agree with that. Mm-hmm. But people who en- engage in kink have scripts; they are checking in with each other all of the time. They're they're checking in before. They engage in any kind of play. So everybody knows exactly what is on the table or on the menu. So um, if... If Emma was my client, what I would ask is once she and I talked through this and she had a firmer grip on understanding her own psyche and and what her body needs to feel empowered again, I would ask that the partner join us for a session so that the three of us could really talk through what she thinks she wants and the partner could express their fears and their concerns and the three of us could just start to build a script together And this script is not written in stone. This script is going to be adapted. I can guarantee there are going to be changes to it, but we start with the script, they go home and do some homework, and then we come back and see what worked and what didn't.
0: So beautifully structured and really helpful because so often I think that we get over entangled with who we think we are as a result of what we like sexually. And that's a place that can feel really scary for survivors and their partners if they are getting into any kind of um, uh, sexual trauma play. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between trauma repetition, trauma reenactment and trauma play as it relates to sex?
1: So trauma repetition, um, trauma reenactment are very different than trauma play. Um I don't usually use the words trauma play. I'm going to typically pull out elements of what feels different. We're really going to come back to rewriting this and um, Mm -hmm. words inform our experience. So I'm constantly checking with my clients of what words feel good to you. And most of the time, and this certainly there's no always, um, most of the time trauma play isn't going to be isn't is not how we're going to frame it, that's not how we would move forward. But again, like with Emma's question so much information lies in how present am i in my body during the play and how do i feel after am i shutting down after am i in shame after can i look at myself in the mirror in my in my eyes can i make eye contact with myself or can i make eye contact with my partner those are such telltale signs that if you can you're not reenacting a trauma you're not re-traumatizing yourself
0: how does that change if a partner is not really understanding and shames the survivor afterward? How do we differentiate that kind of experience of being shamed versus feeling shame?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. And again, I would love to start at the beginning of that so that that doesn't happen. But obviously, it does happen a lot. I would want the survivor to advocate for themselves and just say, hey, I've been doing my work here this feels healing to me. This is something I'm choosing. And yes, you and I can keep checking in with each other. We can have words, we can have body signals so that, you know, I am still present and this is working for me. And we can absolutely talk after, as you should talk about what felt good, what felt different. Um, but I don't want to be shamed anymore for my wishes and desires. And I really need to use my voice now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful and a place where a lot of survivors really struggle because experiencing sexual trauma can leave people with this partless, what feels like a permanent state of disempowerment and uh, a disconnection from one's own sexuality. And that can lead to a lot of doubts about whether or not what someone enjoys is okay to enjoy, whether we're talking about um, kink or vanilla or any other aspects of sexual pleasure. Um, so, I think it's really key that maybe we can back up a little bit and talk about survivors and what are the initial steps to reclaiming a life of pleasure, separate from Emma's
1: question. Kate, okay, and that your last comments just walked s- straight into that area. So, the first step, which is a big step, is processing the sexual trauma. Um, so often, you know, there's there's still self-blame and shame and really not understanding what happened to them, not what happened, but what happened to them, because you know, most survivors are going to have that little hand raise and say, yeah, but I, but I, but I, I got in the car, I kissed them, I went on three dates with them, and none of that matters, right? None of that matters. So our work as a therapist is to really let themselves off the hook from any complicity for that situation. After that, we really start looking at sexual health, which Kate, you were talking about in this sex positive framework. So how I describe that is all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. I don't care how kinky it is. I don't care how vanilla it is. We don't use words like perverted, weird. No one does it. We don't say any of that. We really work hard to understand what turns you on, where the desire is, and where your own personal arousal is. And if it checks just those two boxes, pleasure and consent, we are good to go. And then we can move forward into really helping you reclaim a healthy sex life and healthy, solid relationships.
0: Absolutely. And I really love the emphasis here on, on embodied pleasure. And I think it's really important to talk a little bit about what to do if you feel dissociated or if you can't feel anything in your body during sex. That's something I hear all the time from survivors. So how do you walk folks through understanding that?
1: So again, it's the first step is understanding that this was at one point in time, an adaptation, a really functional adaptation that your body used, your brain, and your body chose to keep you safe. This is not a malfunction. This is not a brokenness. Your body decided at some point, hey, I'm going to dissociate or numb out because what happened before in the past was too much and I can't be present for it. So we've just got to bring the, the body back online and to do that, so if, if I had a client that was dissociating during sex, she literally can't be in her body, I would take sex off the table. So however she's describing sex, whether it's oral sex or penis and vagina, we would take that off the table for a series of weeks, really go back and start at the beginning in a very slow and intentional way, which could include self-massage. Um, then add in self-pleasure. But I mean, Kate, for me, I take even the genitals are off the table for a series of weeks. So we just get to be back in a safe place with our body um, experiencing in a non-sexual way. And then we can layer in the sexuality pieces.
0: Yeah, it's really key to slow down and slow way, way down when that's happening repeatedly because it can take a long time for people to feel really comfortable in their body with the sensations of pleasure happening simultaneously. And I think a big part of that is because when some people are experiencing pleasure, it signals such a big fear because pleasure can be so overwhelming and can create this experience of powerlessness and helplessness that comes when you surrender with pleasure
1: So when a survivor re-engages in sexuality, of course, this idea um, in the the kink scenario of the forced seduction, that can be really powerful and helpful and help you reclaim all those pieces of yourself. But again, we're going to very much slow that down because we have to make sure we have control before we relinquish it. And for a lot of survivors who um, haven't had a chance to process their trauma or understand it, they're jumping straight to them going to relinquish it and hope I feel differently than I did when my sexual trauma happened. Sure, sometimes that that can happen, but oftentimes it doesn't, and they do end up feeling worse. So, we're going to start with how do I maintain control? So, I look at all areas of life. So, how are you, where do you feel like you have control? Where do you feel empowered in your life? Then, we're going to look at sexually with yourself. And then, we're going to look at sexually with your partner. When that is all really solid and we know you can maintain control and you can stay in your body during partnered sex, then we move towards areas of um, perceived powerlessness or like that fantasy of being. Um, less powerful, that's when we start to build build from there.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the expectations for healing and for a person's relationship with sex when they are a survivor? Does healing ever come to an end right? Do they is it done? or is it something people have to check in around throughout their lives?
1: Okay. So here's my answer. It gets so much better. It gets 80% better, maybe 85% better. People do not get triggered anymore for the most part. However, it is a lifelong process, just like um, for all of us that learning and intentionality is a lifelong process. So let's say that you experienced rape in your 20s, and you've worked through that in your late 20s and early 30s. And then in your mid to late 30s, you decide that you would like to have a child. At that point, that could be a time when you need to re-engage with like looking at your trauma and seeing what kind of triggers comes up. Or um, I know for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, if they were abused by their mother or their father or a sibling, an aunt or an uncle, and that person Uh, dies or passes or somehow moves out of their life, then again, they might need to look at the trauma could be marriage, it could be menopause, any kind of big life changes can often bring up our trauma, not in the way that it did before we did our initial processing about around it, but just in these little ways where you're going to notice like, Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling something again, and I don't like it. Yeah,
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. It's really disheartening, I think, for a lot of survivors who aren't prepared for that to achieve these different life milestones in life. And they imagine it's supposed to be a really happy thing, like having a baby that they've chosen to have. But the experience of having your body be in a process of providing for another being can sometimes feel really Uh, helpless, powerless, and it engenders a lot of fear for pregnant people who are survivors, sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes the process of childbirth can feel really re-traumatizing, or when your child reaches the age that you were when you first were sexually abused, that can create uh, um, a process unconsciously where symptoms of that trauma can be present again. And it is important to hold space for that delicate tender part of yourself that will you know, perhaps need some more nurturing or more tenderness in those moments and it might be a time when you take sex off the table until you feel more calibrated again and like the new milestone can be a part of who you are without evoking big uh, emotions or physiological sensations
1: yes yeah, Kate, so well, so well put. So the fear of childbirth, um, that is certainly one uh, symptom I see in a lot of the survivors I work with. And there is a name for this. This is tocophobia. So it's not just you. This is something that happens for a lot of people. The other thing with um, being pregnant and going through pregnancy, I have two clients right now who are just really struggling with their growing body because their body feels out of control. Mm -hmm. So I literally had a woman on the phone the other day say, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm 15 weeks pregnant. And my doctor said I was only supposed to gain 10 pounds up to this point, but I've gained eight pounds. My body must be completely out of control. This is never going to end. How am I going to stay healthy? How am I going to keep my baby healthy? And the train just starts rolling. Yeah, so what we know there is, of course, um, it is going to end, her body is going to settle. Again, just like after sexual trauma, your body is not trying to betray you. It just comes up with some adaptations to keep you safe. And that's the same process that's happening in pregnancy. And the good news with pregnancy is we know it, it absolutely does end after nine months. Um, so my work with these clients that are, are in the pregnancy stage is really trying to be as in their body and enjoying these nine months as much as they can instead of feeling out of control and um, very dissociated.
0: When survivors are in that place of having had a child and they're experiencing some disconnection from their sexuality and they're faced with parenthood and also a partner potentially who wants to resume sexuality, are there any unique obstacles or opportunities for survivors in that stage of life who want to reconnect with their sexuality, but perhaps are feeling, feeling a little bit more residue from earlier trauma heavy in their bodies.
1: I think there are obstacles and there are opportunities. So the obstacles are really going to be, these are so unique to each person, to each survivor. So it's going to be you having awareness of those. So first step awareness, and then some understanding around it. And of course, a sex therapist is going to be a great place to help you with that understanding or reading books or talking to a knowledgeable friend, but um, oftentimes therapy is the gold mark here. And then from there, the behavior change. So I'll say that more simply, awareness, understanding, behavior change. So once you work through that awareness and understanding, your body is almost necessarily going to behave differently. You're going to think differently about these things. The opportunity is just another layer of healing. So you go through your pregnancy, you have a child, that child turns four, you may have experienced childhood sexual abuse around the age of four. Um, This happens so often. So we go back, we find a picture of you at four and we find a picture of you now. This could be just one way to work and really look at how precious that little girl was, that little person was, and how strong and empowered this woman is and finding the bridge there between the two. And there always is one.
0: Yeah, That's so beautiful. So beautiful. And, And it can be so honoring of that young you how should I talk about my trauma with new partners? When should I talk about it? And what do I have to tell them, if anything? And I certainly have my thoughts on that. But I'd love to hear how you coach people through that question.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So first, I want to start with do you want to tell them? So this is your story. Um, This happened to you. I really want you to be sure that you want to tell them. Um, The question I get here is when I meet a new partner, how soon do I tell them? And again, you don't have to, this is your story. If you want to, if to feel like your most authentic Embodied self, you need to share this piece of yourself. My recommendation there, wait until there's a reciprocity of vulnerability. So it can't be just you sharing. Your partner has to have been sharing and vulnerable and there and kind of proven themselves to be there and non judgmental and a good listener. Um, So that aspect of reciprocity. The third piece is you never have to share any details. Even if you decide to go to therapy for sexual trauma, I don't need to know what happened to you. I need a baseline of kind of the time frame, how old you were, um, the scenario. I don't need any of the details. So certainly if your therapist doesn't need the details to really help you process and feel better, no one in your life needs the details. So if you decide to share, you can share as little or as much as you want. And the person hearing this should validate and say How can I support and help? That is almost it. They shouldn't say, Why didn't you call someone? Why didn't you report? Why are you just saying this now? Gosh, it doesn't sound like that was bad. Were you hurt? It doesn't sound like you were hurt. They should not say any of that. They should say, How can I help? That sounds horrible. I'm here to support you.
0: I love that. I think so many folks go into that place of asking questions because they also want to feel in control and they want to try to help in some way, right? And asking questions is the way that they try to help, but it can be completely invalidating to the survivor who has just laid out this very vulnerable experience and wants to be received and witnessed in it. Yeah. So thank you, Holly. This was... This was so helpful. Um, again, the name of your book is Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex Positive Guide for Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life. Where can people find you if they want to work with you or learn more about your approach?
1: Yes. Yeah. Kate, thank you so much. Again, I just loved being with you. I um, adore your work. Respect you so much. So um, if people want to find me, I'm uh, my website is drhollyrichmond.com, just D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook at the same name, just at Dr. Holly Richmond. So please feel free to reach out on any of those platforms. I'm pretty good about getting back to you within 24 hours. Um, And I'm just I'm excited for you all. If you decide to step into this work, it's incredibly rewarding.
0: And you have a whole lab and a course around this, right? For folks who are looking to heal. Can you say a little bit about those programs?
1: Yes, yes. So um, there is an online course also called Reclaiming Pleasure, the course. It's a 10 module course, um, about 15 hours. So it's a it's a big one. Um, But of course, it's in modules so you can take it at your own pace. We're having a huge pay what you can sale for the month of April. Um, And we were going to continue to do some discounts in May as well. Um, So you have the book, you have the course. And just in the next month or two, I'm going to be starting group coaching collectives. So probably five to seven survivors and a group coaching atmosphere. This will all be online. Um, So if that's of interest to you, of course, that's going to be at a lesser price point than individual one on one.
0: Amazing. Holly, thank you so much for talking about your work and for putting together these programs. It is uh, so necessary. And I'm just so grateful to be able to speak with you today and let everyone know about this powerful work that you're doing. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate and at TheModernIntimacy. Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate and on Twitter at Kate Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website, modernintimacy.com, to schedule a consultation with a member of our team, or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services.